Welcome to the Let's Talk Money and More podcast with me, Leslie Thomas. The aim of the podcast is to get us all talking about money more. Talking about money is still considered to be a taboo. We don't talk about money enough. Women don't talk about money enough. And that needs to stop. In this podcast, my guests and I talk about money, mindset, and how to turn around limiting beliefs, allowing you to develop a healthy, wealthy money mindset. Our relationship with money doesn't just affect our finances, but impacts every aspect of our business. And most of all, our own sense of self-value and self-worth. By mastering your mindset, you can in turn master the money you make in your business. Welcome to the latest episode of Let's Talk Money and More with me, your host, Leslie Thomas. Today, I have another fantastic guest to introduce to you, Vix Monroe. Vix is an entrepreneur, author, money enthusiast, and eternal optimist. She's passionate about money, investing, crypto, and the economy. Her mission is to help women step into their financial power and become money savvy in life and in business. She believes we all have the ability to transform our money mindset, rewrite our money story and become financially empowered. Vix is a Kiwi and knows what it's like to arrive in a new country with only £30 in your pocket. So it is so good to have you here on this episode, Vix. Really, really looking forward to our conversation. So a big warm welcome and thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm I'm really excited about being here. So I start every guest episode with one particular question. What is your money story? Oh, that's a great question. It's a long one for me. So my money story, as with most people, starts in my childhood And I grew up in small town New Zealand and my parents were really frugal. So everything they did was really, really frugal. Like I can just think of so many examples for like one of them is that my mother would go out to the charity shop, buy men's jumpers, unpick them and use the wool to knit jumpers for us. It's one thing. My father was completely into getting a bargain like rather than buy you know our bread every day from the local corner shop we call it a dairy in New Zealand he would every Monday morning drive to a bakery and buy the bread for the week it was much cheaper from the direct from the bakery and then he'd put a a loaf in the freezer now we were a big family so it'd be like a loaf a day and then each the night before he'd take the loaf we needed for the next day out of the freezer. So just little things like that, just to even save money on bread. And also another thing, and he still does it now, like he's got a little cupboard and when toilet paper's on special, he'll buy buy it in bulk and put it in the cupboard. And, and I find, you know, I still have that kind of frugal streak in me. But the, I mean, but I think the other thing that came up from, you know, having frugal parents and something I've had to work on is some, you know, because we got a lot of clothes secondhand and they're not hand-me-downs, is feeling that you're not deserving. You know, one of the, one of my most <laughs> kind of, um, mem- one of my memory memories about that was when I wanted a bicycle when I was around about 11 and I was going to a new school and I needed to bike to school and in my day, Rally 20 bicycles were the thing. But my That's dad right. said, no, you're not having a Rally 20 bicycle. 
I, he managed to get some bicycle for free and he fixed it. And I was even embarrassed by this bicycle. I was like, I can't believe I have to ride this bicycle to school. But anyway, that's what I had to do. So something that comes up from that sometimes is that you don't deserve new things, you know, and I've really had to do a lot of work on that. But you know what money mindset issues are like. It's, they're still there, aren't they, for a long time. So that's, so that's something that's really key, a key part of my money story. Um, another key part of my money story is I kind of, which I kind of had this view, I had a view for a long time, which I managed to work on now, that I'm here for a good time, not a long time. And that stemmed from the fact that I had a lot of death in my family when I was a child. So I had two sisters dying. Um, one when I was four and another one when I was nine. And then when I was 11, my mother died as well. So I had a lot of death. And I think particularly my mother's death hit me very hard because obviously I was dependent on her. And when I kind of was at university and even in my 20s, I was just spend, 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 you know, I've got to have a good time now. Who knows how long I'm going to be here for. And it wasn't, so my mother was 35 when she died, and it wasn't until I turned 36, so I'd lived longer than her, that I suddenly thought to myself, actually, you need to sort yourself out. You know, I was earning good money, but I didn't really have anything to show for it. Um, admittedly, I had gone back to university as well. So, you know, I'd got into student debt, but I'd lived, I'd come to London when I was 23. So I'd been in the UK since I was 23. So, you know, this is now 13 years later when I'm 36 and I had absolutely nothing to show for it, but I'd had lots of, lots of really, really good times. And it was then I thought I've got to start sorting myself out. So it's no coincidence, I think, that it was around that time that I bought my first investment property. So that was around about uh, 20 years ago now, just over 20 years ago, show my age. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and that was my first foray really into investing. I mean, obviously I had a corporate job and I had a pension with my corporate job. So I did have that kind of money going in, but this was actually like me making a determined effort to better myself financially. And that was a, the first thing I did. And for about 10 years, I was really focused on property and buying property. And then after about 10 years, I kind of thought, actually, I've got all my eggs in one basket. I, I better start diversifying. So I started diversifying then into like equities, so stocks and shares and commodities, um, and also more recently, well, in 2017, into cryptocurrency. So that's kind of how I really got into investing and building wealth. And the other thing about it, I think, is that I've only been doing this for 20 years. So I'm actually a good example of what you can actually do over time when you set your mind to it. Like I wasn't someone, you know, I'm not from a rich family. I mean, my, as I said, my family were very frugal. I'm not someone that was has been given money. It's all, you know, the things that I've done myself and over a 20-year period, which isn't too scary because I think a lot of people think you've, you know, the 40, it's too late. It's not too late. You can actually do a lot. There's that saying, isn't there? We often overestimate what we can do in one year, but underestimate what we can do in 10 years. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So how, how did you go from somebody in your childhood who was brought up by frugal parents who were always mindful of the money to somebody who has really significantly invested not just in traditional investments, property, 
but now also cryptocurrency as well? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think part of that is my personality because um, I don't, have you done the sacred money archetype? I have. So yeah, my number one is a maverick and my number two is an accumulator. So the maverick likes to take risk and, you know, I am a bit of a risk taker. So in actual fact, another really interesting part of my money story is when I arrived in the UK um, all those years ago, I was 23, so it's over 30 years ago now, and I had 30 pounds in my pocket. That was it. And I'd spent seven weeks getting to the UK. So I flew from New Zealand, spent a couple of weeks in Australia. Actually, it might have been nine weeks. I can't remember now. But then I either spent five weeks or seven weeks backpacking around Southeast Asia. And I just spent more money than I thought I would and that I'd planned to. So by the time I got to the UK, I had 30 pounds in my pocket. But Luckily, we had, well, the friend I was traveling with, she knew someone and we had someone's floor to sleep on and we slept on like yoga mats on the floor and we had sleeping bags with us and we were able to do that for a while. And, you know, the first day I was here, we were out looking for jobs and I got a temp job doing finance work in the city. So I just had to wait until I got paid. So six pounds of that 30 pounds went on a zone one and two London travel card. (laughs) But yeah, so that's kind of a bit of a risky part of me. And also, even when I got into property, this was 1999, I bought my first investment property. Um, Buy-to-let mortgages in the UK had first came out in 1996. So I was only a few years later and I'd actually read the Robert Kiyosaki book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So I thought, oh, this sounds like a good thing to get into. Mm -hmm. But, you know, back in 1999, there weren't that many amateur landlords. Now there's a lot more. And the buy-to-let as kind of investment strategy is kind of well-known. But back in those days, I was probably one of the only, um, except for a group of us that were doing it, I didn't really know anyone else that was doing it. So it was also kind of part of my maverick personality, I think, to take a risk. And then, obviously, in, I got into crypto in 2017. Again, not at the very beginning because crypto, well, Bitcoin has been around since 2009, but relatively early compared to most people I know. I mean, I've got, you know, I know lots of people now that are still saying, oh, should I get into crypto? Um, I don't know. So I think I do kind of have that maverick, um, that's my kind of money archetype. So I, I do kind of take some risk. Um, anyway, what was your question? How did I come? Yeah, so part of it is kind of that I decided to take those risks and invest. I mean, my dad did invest money because, you know, they were very frugal, but they did put money away. I mean, they bought a house, they had a mortgage. I mean, we were a big family. We were seven people most of the time. Um, and yeah, so there wasn't also a lot of money to go around because, you know, it was a one income family which was very typical in those days. So I think it's, you know, partly my personality, I was um, on my money archetype, I was open and willing to take risk. And the other thing is my second money archetype is accumulator. So I also do like to see the accumulation. And whilst I wasn't that careful with my spending back in the day, like during my 20s, I am more careful about my spending now. And that doesn't mean I won't spend money. If I really, really want something, I will spend money. But the way I try to do things now is, you know, ask myself how much joy will this purchase bring me in a Marie Kondo kind of way, you know, on a scale of one to 10. And it's not a nine or 10, nine or 10, or maybe even an eight. It's like, why am I going to spend money on that? Whereas previously, I'd be spending money on things that were a four and a three, (laughs) which is not a good use of money. So, 
I think I've educated myself over time as well, and I've found ways that work for me. And I can be frugal. I mean, I still do things that my father did, like, you know, if I want to buy my shampoo, I know that, if, well, very regularly, Boots will have an offer on three for two. So when it's three for two, I always buy it in bulk. And I'm, I'm like, I'm never going to pay full price for that because I know it will be on sale. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. But I do do things like that as well. Can I can I ask because you know the the maverick um, archetype and the accumulator archetype are quite far away from yes. each other because the accumulator, as you said, loves to hang on to money, whereas the maverick is quite happy to take risks. Do you find there being much of a challenge going on for you either now or previously, and has? having that knowledge allowed you to lessen the impact the challenge might have having two quite diverse archetypes yeah I think it was more of a challenge in the past and in the past I mean obviously it's still a bit of a challenge now but I think now I'm better at managing it and I understand it so when I want to take risks I'm kind of like oh okay and I'm much more calculated about my risks I mean I've I've also made a lot of mistakes along the way with money and, you know, I have taken some risks that I shouldn't have taken and where I lost money. So, you know, I have learned along the way as well. And I think it's just, yeah, I think that awareness allows you to manage it better because you're right, the maverick is a bit risky. The accumulator wants to keep all that money, you know, you know, as an with an accumulator archetype as my second archetype, I like to see my net worth increasing all the time. But with my maverick, you know, some of my investments are, are, are riskier than others. I have a higher risk threshold than some people might be. But I think the way I manage it is when I look at my, say, my net worth, I look at what is, I kind of look at my net worth and I disaggregate it into kind of the certain net worth and the and the bits that coming from risky investments. So I think I'm very aware of what I'm doing and I'm very conscious, but I also watch things all the time. And, you know, with some of my maverick style investments, I'm willing to put, you know, I can, I know that I can pull them when I need to. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, perfect. And as far as the the cryptocurrency element is concerned, you made a comment that, you know, some people still question should they be into cryptocurrency or not? Do you see a generational divide with that? And I asked the question because it's very timely. Last night I was talking with my children and cryptocurrency came up. I can't even why it came, it came up, but it came up. My children are 15 and 13. And my 15-year-old was talking very eloquently about Bitcoin. And I was really surprised, thinking, well, you know, where, where's this knowledge come from? Because it's not something we would ordinarily be talking about in the household, purely because we're, they're not been talking about gaming and <laughs> prep and, you know, friendship arguments, etc. Are you seeing, because I know that you talk about, you know, crypto a lot, you have a lot of experience about crypto, people come to you a lot because you are seen as a guiding light when it comes to those investments. Is crypto that thing at the moment that is a generational thing where the younger generation are much more into it, the older generations more resistant to it? 
Yes, I think so. And it's really interesting because I was looking up some statistics yesterday and unfortunately I haven't got them in front of me, but I was looking up stats yesterday for women versus men investing in crypto. And it's, I think it was something like 16% of men invest in crypto compared to 7% of women. But it also had some, and that's what I was looking for, so I remember those stats. But there were also some stats on generational differences and it's something like, Three to four percent of over sixty-five year olds compare, and the percentage was a lot, lot higher for younger people. And I think it's that younger people don't trust the existing structures. Really, they don't really trust the banks. They see, you know, the way the boomers have 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 done things isn't their way. You know, they're much more into climate change is their their big thing, isn't it? And look at the mess the boomers and the generations before them have made it of the world. So. I, yeah, I definitely see, and also because it's digital, you know, I, I definitely see that. But, you know, the other thing I was talking about the other day, well, yesterday actually, was I remember the internet when, you know, the internet first came. Um, and I remember I did my master's in 94, 95 at the University of York. And in 94, we had, we got introduced to the World Wide Web and we had an email address and it was kind of like, oh, wow. But the only people I could email were other students because no one else I knew actually had email at that point. And I think because I was in academia, we kind of got access earlier. And I saw, I read a statistic the other day, which is something like, I can't remember what it was, but the number of people that are users of crypto now is the same as the number of users with the internet back in 1997. I can't remember what that number was. But the rate of adoption for crypto is much, much higher than the rate of adoption was for the internet. Yet we look back on the internet and think that it has grown so fast, it's grown exponentially, but crypto adoption is actually grown faster than that. So, and I think it, it is young people. I mean, I mean, I think slowly older people are adopting it too. It's, and I think as a, actually as the price goes up, in some ways it means it's gaining greater acceptance with a higher price and more trust. So I think as the price goes up, more people come to it. Whereas some people say, oh, I should have gotten earlier, but it's, I can kind of understand why they don't because they need to know that it's got that kind of acceptance and price reflects it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because uh, in 1997, I was working for Orange and that we were one of the first people, this, I was in the sales force then, we were one of the first people to get a laptop and, and an email address and access to the World Wide Web. But at that point in time, it wasn't that great because, as you said, didn't really have very many people other than work colleagues that you know I could contact. But also... My so 1999 was obviously the millennium, um, yeah. and the concerns about what would happen on Millennium Eve. Y two K. Y two K. Exactly. My dad was due to pay off his mortgage in 1999, and he didn't pay his mortgage off because he didn't trust the internet. He thought the bank would have forgotten that he paid his mortgage <laughs> off. 
<laughs> so he carried on paying his mortgage off when he didn't need to. He had he had the he had the funds to pay it off early because he'd retired and had given a you know golden handshake or a golden goodbye. He could have paid off his mortgage early, and he didn't because he didn't trust the banking system would be able to reliably record the fact that he had paid off his mortgage. So it goes to show, doesn't it, that every time something new comes along, there is a mistrust of it. And, you know, there also does seem to be, you know, a, a sexual equality as well when it comes to investing. And, you know, as you said, there, there does seem to me to be a prevalence amongst men to invest in diversification, whereas women tend to either not invest or go down a, a more traditional route. Is that yeah, what you're tend- seeing as well? Yeah, women tend to save more than invest as well. So they tend to feel more comfortable with having money in the bank. And I think that's an education thing. Women need to understand what they're doing. Whereas men seem to have this gung-ho attitude, oh, yeah, investing, I can do it, no trouble. But, you know, statistics actually show that women who do invest generally do better than men because women who are investing have usually educated themselves so they know what they're doing more than men. So even though we have more men investing than women, those women that do tend to do better. And I think that's the reason why many women don't invest. They kind of think it's rocket science and it's going to be too difficult, but it's not, particularly since, you know, if you want to invest in stocks and shares, you can invest in a fund like that tracks the FTSE 100, which is the top 100 companies in the UK, and you get exposure to all those 100 companies. You don't have to select stocks and shares. And also, you know, people see crashes, don't they? People see the stock market crash at different points in time and think, oh, you know, and, and feel concerned about that. I mean, someone said to me the other day, well, we invested in the stock market and, it, and it, it's dropped and, oh, gosh, wish we hadn't done that. But the reality about the stock market is, is it does even flow. It goes up and down. And the whole thing about investing in the stock market is about time in the market is that over time, those ebbs and flows kind of even out and the overall trajectory is up. But if you're trying to time the market and get in at the bottom and sell at the top, that is incredibly difficult. Even the top investors don't do you know, uh, don't do that so well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you were to offer a kind of investment 101, particularly to women listening at the moment, and I appreciate I'm putting you on the spot with this, what would be your kind of top five tips for women looking to educate themselves with regards to investing and going about creating the right investment portfolio for themselves? Where should they start? Well, I would say the first thing is to educate themselves and to understand what investing is and to under, and to, I would be showing them statistics. So, for example, the S&P 500 is the, 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 the 500 biggest companies in the U.S., and like I have some slides on the S&P 500, which show that over time, the average return is around 10% per year. So I would then talk to them about compound interest. So, you know, that compound interest is interest on interest on interest. Like in year one, you get 10% on your investment. In year two, you get 10% on your investment plus 10% on the interest. And that happens over and over again. So it becomes the exponential. So that's the first thing I'd want to educate them on is understanding compound interest and also 
how the overall trajectory is up. Because in my slide, for example, on the S and P five hundred, I have break I break it down into years. Well, they have green bars going up and red bars going down, and you can see that you know some years these big dips, um, and. What worries people is people think they're going to get a big dip. Well, if you get a big dip and if you're investing regularly over time, which would be my second tip, invest regularly over time. Because if you invest regularly over time, you do what's called your dollar cost average in. You know, if you were to invest all your money today in a, in a stock or share, you get what that price is. And if that drops, it's like, ugh. I mean, it might also increase, but at least if you dollar cost average in, you kind of get the average price over time. So my second tip would be to dollar cost average time. The third thing I'd want to talk about is helping them understand risk, which is kind of what I've you know already mentioned about stocks and shares go up and down and you need to be in for the long term and you need to not, when you're talking about investing, not need to take that money out. So that's three. I think the fourth thing I'd talk to them about is I would compare I talk to them about looking at the difference between saving versus investing because what, as I said earlier, what happens is a lot of women save; they have money in the bank. I mean, at the at the moment, you're lucky to get you know half a percent in interest, which is nothing, and you know inflation is more than that. So, I mean, you're not even offsetting inflation. So, I I talk to them about the difference between saving and investing. And show them how actually the key to growing, creating and growing wealth is actually investing. So how many tips is that? There must be about That's three. Four. That's four. four. No, we've got four. We've got education, the dollar cost average time, understand risk, difference between saving and investing. And then I think the fourth thing I'd do is about diversification, which is also about understanding risk. It's like don't put all your eggs in one basket. So what you want to have is a diversified portfolio because – what happens if there's some markets go down, but others go up? So you might find um, stocks and shares go down overall, or and then gold goes up. So you want to have exposure to both to kind of mitigate the, the risk. So I'd be talking about diversification. That's amazing. That's absolutely fantastic. So anybody listening, you've just had the, an investment 101 um, yeah. and details will be in the show notes if you've not been able to, or obviously listen back to the podcast as well. Now you mentioned compound interest. That's really interesting because I have been involved in a pilot with regards to financial education, financial literacy um, for children and in schools. Oh, excellent. I love that. Uh, and the, the third, so there's this there's four there's four um sessions basically, and the first two sessions are led by um a young guy, he's in his early 30s now, he lives in Hong Kong, and when he was 14, his dad gave him a lump sum of money to invest as he saw fit, basically. His dad kind of expected him to burn through it. And that would be, you know, lesson learned, essentially. But he didn't. He he invested wisely. And this is where the children have really bought into his story. Due to compound investment, his investment is now worth four and a half thousand times the investment his dad gave him when he was 14. And I have never seen a quieter classroom of children than when he talked them through that process. There was like a pen, you could have heard a pin drop 
Because oh, wow, that's fantastic. And isn't it, isn't it great to get children, you know, not just talking about, you know, setting up a postal account or the need to, you know, think about what you're going to do with your pocket money, save some, you know, some for fun, etc. But to actually think in bigger terms with regards to how that money, you could be starting to make money work at 14, 15, and essentially be paying off your mortgage so, so much mm-hmm. earlier than traditionally we educate children to do. So I oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, I actually think, you know, financial literacy and personal finance for children is really, really important. So it's great that you're involved in that pilot because I think the problem is that some children aren't taught that at home and some parents don't have the skills to teach that to their children either because they don't know and they're struggling to struggle with money. So to actually, you know, have a program in schools where you do have the right people teaching it is really, really important. Yeah, totally agree with you. Totally agree with you. So talking of childhood, what would Vix today say to her younger self? I think that you do you do deserve to have nice things that, you know, you because I always thought we were poor, we didn't have any money. And, and you know, and the other thing as well is, you know, all these kind of money blocks that you have from childhood, like rich people are greedy and things like that. You know, rich people aren't greedy. Um, rich people are just like, you know, rich people are normal people. They just happen to have more money. Um, it doesn't, and what's that, what's that saying? Um, money unmasks you. So it just shows yeah. who you really are, mm-hmm. but you're still the same person. So I think I'd say those things, you know, rich people aren't greedy. You can, you know, have money. You can live the life you want. Which I, I think, I, you know, we should be saying to everyone, every child as well, because if you want to have a certain life, then no one's going to give it to you. Someone's not going to arrive on your doorstep and say, here's this amazing life. You've got to go out and get it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's so much truism um, in the phrase, you know, I make money, money doesn't make me. Yeah, I love that one. I think so much of somebody's self-worth, self-value can be tied up in that whole conversation around money and you know and I know I know you feel the same as me you know I think it's so important to decouple that your self-value should never be based on the amount of money you have or don't have in your bank balance that number is just information it's what you do with that information that is going to create that real sense of self-value and self-worth, not that information itself. Absolutely. And one of the things I say is self-worth is not net worth and self-worth is much, much more important than net worth. As you say, net worth is just a number. Net worth you can, you know, you can work on, you can increase your net worth. It's part of build, you know, building wealth. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And in terms of you, Vix, and your investment future going forward what are you keeping an eye on at the moment what kind of insider tips would you be suggesting to them well, what I try and do is I try and have a balanced portfolio so even within for example my equity stocks and shares I try and have some balance but every now and then I notice that there's things I don't really have 
So some of the things I'm looking at at the moment are some of the metals that are needed for electric cars because I don't really have that much exposure to them. Um, so I think that's an interesting area. And also, so, yeah, what I'm looking at is what I don't have. And then also exposure to different areas of the world. I mean, I have the standard ones, you know, Europe, US, the emerging markets, which are usually like Asia, um, India, um, South America, but there's some other areas um, in the world where I'm kind of interested in as well. And then the other, and then the other thing I do is I also invest in startups through the EIS scheme. And for those, the kind of companies I'm interested in are those that are really highly innovative. So so far, I've invested in medical cannabis, AI, and cybersecurity, which I think are interesting areas. And I got contacted the other day about a new one in recycling. So they're kind of the areas I'm particularly interested in at the moment, but this is as part of a diversified um, portfolio. So it's kind of like, I feel like, you know, I have, an, I have enough exposure to European markets. I have enough exposure to the UK. So I want to add some more diversification in. Oh, I love what you said there. Particularly loved around, you know, the metals required for electric cars because I would never, ever have kind of thought about that. But you are so right to look almost at not just where the trends are today, but where the trends are going in the future and the connection to where people are going to be investing their money. Yeah, and I read I, I read an article about Tesla, for example, and what the forecast was in terms of car sales 10 years from now or 20 years from now. I can't remember what it was now. And then in this article, they listed, you know, all the components that are needed and where, how much of them are, are currently available. And there's obviously some real shortages, potential shortages in the future, and also where they are coming from, like, one of the metals was predominantly coming from China. And I mean, that that then poses a risk. So I think, you know, there needs to be um, some of that metal coming from elsewhere as well. So it just highlights some of those areas that you can invest in. But that is because, and the reason I'm looking at things on such a small scale now is because I already am kind of invested in lots of funds that, you know, like the FTSE 100, I, that tracks the UK market, the S&P 500 in the US, the NASDAQ, um, those kind of things. So I'm tracking other markets and I'm now looking at, yeah, how I can get even more diversification into mm. my portfolio. And has the pandemic in any way influenced your thinking or decision-making on how you're investing now? Um. It did actually because the pandemic started around March last year and around March last year, I decided to increase my, it wasn't just the pandemic, but it was other things as well, partly because I, I understood more and I learned more, but I decided to increase my allocation to crypto like as a percentage of my, my portfolio. So I, I'd invested in crypto back in 2017 and I decided kind of early 2020 that actually I'm going to put more money into crypto. Um but otherwise, I think it makes you think about how the world is changing. I mean, commercial property, for example, 
I actually, I mean, I invest in property. Most of my property is residential. I do have a, a, like one holiday accommodation or maybe two. One is part holiday, part not. So maybe two holiday. I am interested in maybe doing a bit more in the holiday accommodation market because there's better tax breaks there than there are for residential. I actually don't have any commercial property and I was had previously thought, you know, that's an area I don't have, maybe I should think about it. But actually, because of the pandemic, I thought actually it's not the right time mm, for me absolutely. to go into commercial property. So it does have little things like that, but not not so many. A lot of my investments I kept. I know some people got nervous and, and sold off. And, you know, they did drop a lot, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic. For example, the FTSE 100, you know, that fund dropped a lot and it's and it's recovered a bit, but not fully recovered yet. So I'm just like, well, this is one of those things that time, you know, just it's about time in the market, not time in the market. And markets will have ebbs and flows. So it's had a drop and ultimately it'll come back. Yeah, absolutely. And it's as you say, it, it is being in it for the, the, the long game and watching what's going on and not reacting, essentially. Yeah. And it's also now, you know, I'm still buying into the FTSE 100, but um, but some, a smaller amount, though, that's because I did a reallocation. But so I'm now buying in at a cheaper price. So yeah. so there's that as well. So, you know, you can you can treat it like a sale. Yeah, and that's a really good point, really good point. So you gave a fantastic Investment 101 a little bit earlier in our conversation. What would be the one piece of advice you wish you had been given sooner? To start investing, to start investing young. Because if you look, because of compound interest, you know, if you were to invest, say, £100 a month for 20 years compared to £100 a month for 40 years, and then look at the difference you get at the end, the 40 years one is not double the 20 years one. It is much, much, much higher yeah. than that. So that whole thing about time, you know, is really important in investing. So the longer you've got, the better. Now, that doesn't mean that if you don't have much time not to invest, it just means, you know, you've missed that opportunity, but you'll still do better by starting today than starting next year or the year after. But, yeah, I mean, if you can get 40, 50 years worth of um, compound interest, that's amazing. Like that phrase, isn't it? When's the best time to plant a tree? Oh, yeah. 20 years ago. When's the second best time? Today. Today. Yeah, yes. absolutely. I use exactly. that phrase a lot. I love it. Yeah, so do I. Thank you very, very much. It's been so informative talking to you. I've learned lots today, and I think our audience will equally have learned a lot. How can people connect with you? Okay, so I'm on Instagram as vix.munro. I have a Facebook page, which is called Retire Rich. My website is Retire Rich with Vix. And I do have a free Facebook group for women, sorry guys, um, which is called the Retire Rich Community. Brilliant. And all those details will be in the show notes. So anybody, please do reach out to Vix. She has a wealth no pun in, in, intended there, but she has a wealth of information that is really going to help people to really get comfortable with investing and how and where to invest as well. So thank you very much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Me too. Thanks, Vix. Thank you for listening to the Let's Talk Money and More podcast. If you have enjoyed it, I would love it if you would tell somebody else about it. 
You don't have to leave a review or write a post on social media tagging me, Leslie Thomas Coaching on Instagram or the Money Mastery Business Coach on Facebook. But if you do, I promise I will give you a shout out in a future episode and I will be hugely grateful. I can also be found at Leslie-Thomas on LinkedIn. If you would like a copy of my free resource, Three Mindset Shifts to Double Your Income, then please go to leslieathomas.com forward slash let's hyphen talk hyphen money. I would love to hear from you, so please do email me at leslie at leslieathomas.com. I will reply to all messages, but please do be patient. Until next time, remember, master your mindset and in turn, you can master the money you make in your business.